here on ESPN Plus. Hercules Gomez, Sevi Salazar, my man. How you doing? He's back. He's back, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. It's about time. The boys are back in town. Thank you, thank you. Yes, last week my uh, stomach could best be compared to Christian Pulisic's hamstrings oh. about a month ago. <laughs> Rimshot. Your, your boy was in bad shape, bad shape, but uh, I am back. recovered now, all back and, and in good time, huh? A perfect week. We got the Liga Mekis final set, we got Champions League final to preview. We have so much coming up in the show. Special interview with Tiffany Roberts Sahedek. She's now the head coach at the University of Central Florida for women's soccer, also won a gold medal and a World Cup with the U.S. women's national team, so plenty to discuss with her. But, Herc, what a weekend we are coming off in Europe. Plenty of hardware handed out and plenty of players from this region now have league winners medals dangling around their necks. Let's start in Spain, La Liga. What a title race this was from the very, very jump. Back and forth they went, back and forth they went. In the end, Atletico Madrid are your champions of Spain. They do so thanks to a 2-1 win over Valladolid on the weekend, holding off Real Madrid in the process. Hector Herrera, didn't start, uh, but that's no surprise. Hasn't been starting much of late. He did enter in the 85th minute, so he was on the field as Atleti won this title. No surprise for anyone who's been following this title race all season long. Luis Suarez, of course, of course, scored the goal that ends up giving Atleti the title. But as far as Hector Herrera is concerned, Herc, it's pretty significant. He didn't start, but he was on the field in the most important moments of the season here for Atleti. So Diego Simeone clearly has faith uh, in Hector Herrera when it comes to the big moment. It may not be the role Mexican national team fans want from Atleti. It may not be the role that Aceace wants at Atleti, but he has a significant role in what is now the league champions of Spain. Yeah, listen, Atleti won in the way we all thought Atleti would win, suffering, uh, squeaking by, getting by. Hector Herrera, that's kind of been his season as well. This is a player that was heavily criticized by many when he went from Porto, when he was the captain of Porto, on a free transfer to Atletico Madrid. Many didn't think he was up to snuff that he wouldn't play. He didn't play at first, slowly but surely started winning Cholo Simeone's faith. And when he did play, Cholo Simeone said he was an important piece of his puzzle. That puzzle in the midfield that for long stretches of this season saw them be leaders in La Liga. And listen, we talk about suffering and the willingness to suffer. It coincides that Hector Herrera gets COVID. He's out for a while, comes back. He's having trouble winning his spot. His mother falls ill and then passes away, has trouble regaining focus. And when he comes back, it all pieces together. This has really been his type of year in what is Atletico and La Liga. Uh, this is special for me. In, in a lot of ways, Seb, you know that I played a Pachuca with Hector Herrera. He was a, a young 19-year-old there, and there's a guy who had uh, trouble starting, had trouble playing, didn't really uh, fit in there. And when he, when he really did and he got it together, he became an important piece of the Pachuca puzzle. Uh, he became a player that won the Toulon tournament. He became a player that won the gold, Olympic gold in um, what was London 2012. Just an important, prominent figure in club and country. I got to see him grow up. I got to see him kind of be that important player slash person, a Mexican figure. And to see him now captain of Porto, to see him now La Liga champion, it's really quite thrilling for me. 
Yeah, so he's now won. He's the king of Iberia, right? He's won Portugal with Porto. <laughs> he's now won um, Spain with Atleti. He's actually the fourth Mexican to win La Liga. We got Rafa, we got Hugo, and we got Jonathan Dos Santos. So he joined some pretty good company there. I'm looking at his season stats here, Herc, and you can kind of see him there at the bottom of the screen. 21 appearances. What you don't see there is there were only eight starts. And when I start thinking about his future, I look at that team, and they got a really good and really young midfield that Herc, I think it's going to be very difficult for him to change the role that he has at Atleti. Look at these guys. Saul, yep. Coque, Marcos Llorente. I mean, these are staples. Yeah. These are staples now in Atleti and, and potentially moving forward in the Spanish national team. I think we're probably seeing the ceiling for Hector Herrera at Atleti. I'm not saying that is a good or a bad thing. I just don't think his role, Herc, if we're being honest, is really going to change next season. No, I don't think it's really going to change either, especially because of the type of game they play. It's so physically demanding and so much pressure, absorb, do not break physically. You have to be good. You have to defend. 90 minutes out, it's a different type of game. Physically, I don't know if his body going into his 30s, uh, early 30s, can really sustain that type type of of uh, abuse and listen let's be honest this pandemic year has increased the amount of games these players play uh, you can talk about COVID you can talk about injury whatnot the most important moments of Atletico season the most important games he was there he was playing so that bodes well for him but yes I agree with you I think this is more of what we're going to see coming next year all right, let's push on from Spain to Italy, where the real race was for the top four. And I tell you what, one team blew it at the wire. Chucky, Lozano, and Napoli, they had it in their hands. All they needed was a win against 10th place Hellas Verona, Rafa Marquez, old team. These guys were on the beach. Instead, what happens? Game ends in a 1-1 draw. Napoli finished fifth. Chucky started, but he was subbed off in the 68th minute. Herc, no champions for Chucky. At least if he stays at Napoli. No Champions League for Chucky Lozano. We're talking about Europa League for one of the teams que pintaba para más. You expected more from them, especially because they had their destiny in their own hands. All they had to do was get a favorable result. Chucky Lozano gets the start. Chucky Lozano one of the most expensive transfers in Napoli's history, the most expensive in his time, and yet we're left with more questions than answers again when it comes to Chucky Lozano, again when it comes to Gennaro Gattuso. Uh, Gennaro Gattuso who opts to sometimes play him off the bench, not play him enough, who opts to play him as a second nine, who opts to play him not in his preferred position, who oftentimes, you said it many times, all we hear coming out of his mouth is, run, Chucky, run. Bye, Chucky, bye. Bye, Chucky, bye. We're left wanting more out of Chucky Lozano and his situation, but the second straight season, it's 10 plus goals for the Mexican. All right, uh, you know who else wanted more? Il Matino, that's uh, the morning paper in Naples. This is what they had to say about Chucky. His legs were shaking on the night that the Champions League was on the line. Um, after the game, you mentioned Gattuso. We find out Gattuso's gone. My first reaction was one of these, a quick fist pump for Chucky, because I thought it's good news if indeed Chucky does stay at Napoli that Gattuso's leaving. You know I'm not a Gattuso fan as far as it comes to Chucky Lozano. Am I wrong? Or is it bad news that Gattuso's leaving for Chucky? Ah, oh, man. You could say it's good news because maybe somebody will come in and will give him that confidence that he desperately needs. Mm. But under Gennaro Gattuso's two straight campaigns where it's 10-plus goals in positions that aren't really familiar to him. And by the way, Ancelotti Gattuso, he's never really played in this position. He's had his doubts about where he's going to play and how much time he actually deserves. 
maybe the third or the next person to come in, next coach comes in, isn't exactly what Chucky's looking for. Maybe tactically Chucky isn't up to snuff, like he wasn't back in PSV and he had his problems with his coach there. I think Chucky Lozano needs the perfect situation for him to really blossom and explode uh, all his full potential. Yeah, guess where that perfect situation is? It's not in Napoli, and he better find somewhere else to play next year. Gattuso or not, that's not the best spot for him moving forward, especially without Champions League football. So, Napoli gives up their Champions League spot. Somebody has to get it. Who is it? No surprise. Juventus. The shocker here was Juventus beat Bologna 4-1 with Cristiano Ronaldo on the bench, Herc. What? Uh, Weston McKinney was also on the bench, though. He came in in the 58th minute, so he's a sub in the victory. Now that Juve is in the Champions League, Herc, are you more convinced that it's still the best spot moving forward for McKinney? A couple weeks ago, we were suggesting no Champions League. Might be time for McKinney to move on. No, I'm convinced it's the best spot for him. It's a huge team. It's a huge club. Juventus is one of the biggest clubs in the world, one of the most storied clubs in the world. He's getting time. He's certainly valued. We've heard many pundits alike say uh, that Weston McKinney, Chiesa, Delit, and other young players are the staple. They're the backbone. They are the future of what is this Juventus team. Now that they have the money for Champions League. And also, by the way, you mentioned Cristiano Ronaldo did not start. This all but tells me he is gone. If Cristiano Ronaldo and that massive salary is not there, more money. I think there's no need to sell players like Weston who could be coveted elsewhere in higher priced leagues. He stays. And I'm going to give you the most important stat, okay? He got his goals. He got his assist. What was it? It was five goals in regular season, two assists. The most important stat for me is when he starts, 22 wins, three mm. draws, three losses. This guy is a gamer. He's a game changer. And I think under the right tutelage, he could be a very good player in Serie A. All right, speaking of tutelage, you mentioned Pirlo, right? And Pirlo is a doubt to come back. We don't know if he's going to be the manager next year. Do you think McKinney wants Pirlo to return, or do you think he'd like a chance under somebody else? I think he'd like, love a chance under somebody else, not like love a chance. Uh, I know we've had Matteo here, and he's told us that his position has been central at times. I see him out wide, and I see him defending for a Cristiano Ronaldo, the, the defensive spaces that he could leave behind, so they're not counterattack. I see a very pragmatic game in Andrea Pirlo, which is so odd because he was such a creative driving force in that final third for Juve for many years. I think Weston McKinney is craving, he is crying. Uh, and screaming for a different type of coach that lets him take off the handcuffs, lets him mm. roam a bit more, lets him be more of this box-to-box -box player, lets him be that driving force in the center field like he was for Schalke, like he's been for the U.S. men's national team. Yeah, and you think about who Juve might bring in, maybe a Zinedine Zidane. It's just Ooh. different when we talk about Juve versus Napoli, right? If Chucky's waiting for who Napoli would hire, I don't think they're going to get anybody near the level of the type of coach that Juventus can draw. Pretty obvious statement. 18 starts this year for Weston McKinney and Syria. That's a pretty good year. I don't think a lot of people would have seen that for him in year one with Juve. All right, let's move to France, where what an upset. What an upset. PSG has all the money, but they don't have the title. Lille are your champions. Lille, by the way, CONCACAF's team, uh, as they beat uh, Angers on the weekend, 2-1. to one. They got Jonathan David of Canada, right? He scored on Sunday. They got Eugenio Pisuto. Didn't play this season, made the bench a few times, 19-year-old Mexican. And they got this guy, who you're looking at, Tim Weah. Didn't play Sunday, but he made 28 league appearances, seven starts, three goals. He's just 21 years old and hurt. Um, maybe not this game, but this season was a big step forward for Weah in his career. 
Yeah, more so health. I mean, he played, he got to his appearances. He only played about 25 minutes of the available minutes to him. Uh, but his overall health was good, and that's been an issue lately. It's been an issue in his young career. Only three goals. This is a player that I would expect a lot more out of. This is a player that likened himself to Neymar, that's very good on the ball. He's very dramatic. He has the air for the dramatic. He likes that flair. He likes to entertain. But at the end of the day, it's those numbers. It's the statistics. And if you're an offensive player, three goals for a championship team, quite frankly, isn't up to snuff, isn't good enough. But he's still young. He's still getting there. He's still learning what it's like to be a professional. And appearances in a championship team like this that competes with a PSG, with the likes of Kylian Mbappe and Neymar, this could only make you better. But yes, let's hope he translates this from what is Ligue 1 to the U.S. men's national team. So 37 appearances for Timothy Weah this season. Here's why that's significant. Before this year, the most games that he played in across all comps in a season was 17. So you're right about the durability. I mean, these are major minutes in a in a huge title race that he's been able to have. And I got to say, it's, it's going to be big for him with the national team because his spot in the national team not that different from his spot at Lille, right? Just a little bit on the periphery waiting to explode. Waiting to explode, and also I don't think it's set in stone that he's a wide player. I've seen him with a tendency always to drive in, maybe the second forward, maybe a backup nine. He seems to be a player who has this tendency to drift centrally and join the attack to combine. Uh, if Greg Berhalter is looking for that proactive possession type um, game, he could be a very interesting player. But at the end of the day, if you have players who are scoring goals, they will always get the benefit of the doubt of a player who's a projected, I guess, uh, talent, if you will. Okay, so uh, in France, the intrigue was at the top of the table. In Germany, the intrigue was very much at the bottom of the table, and it did not go well for Josh Sargent and Werder Bremen. They were playing for their lives, uh, and they lost. 4-2 against Borussia Mönchengladbach. Sargent and Bremen are going to get relegated. Herc, you hate Werder Bremen for Josh Sargent. Every time we talk about Josh Sargent, you're like, have you seen him play? He never gets the ball. They never attack, this, that, and the other. You can't wait for him to leave Werder Bremen. This is just what you wanted. I hate Josh Sargent if I, not Josh Sargent, I would hate Werder Bremen if I was playing. I, I would not <laughs> want to play in that type of team. It's, it's sit back, defend, roll up your sleeves. You know you're not going to get a ton of looks. And when you do, you have to take advantage of it. It's an enormous amount of pressure, especially on a young player. He's 21 years old. He led the, he led the team in goal scored in all competitions. Uh, this is a team that doesn't exactly scream entertaining, entertainment uh, to you, to the fan. So now you try to translate that to what is a U.S. men's national team. If I'm Greg Berhalter, I'm worried about him being on a team where he plays this type of brand, where he plays this type of football. I want to see him more proactive in the final third with the willingness to combine with players around him who are going to play the same way. I don't want to see him in Bundesliga 2, nor do I think we'll see him in Bundesliga 2. You can see how much this means to him, the tears on his face, a team that gave birth to him in first team football, a team that he thought he could do more in. It doesn't matter if you're scoring goals in the Bundesliga, if your team is Werder Bremen at the end of the day, this hurts. Yeah, absolutely. I'm actually looking at it here. A report on our website last week said Werder Bremen could be looking to move Sargent as soon as June 30th. So we might have some news before all that long. Here's some of the clubs that were listed. Herc, see if any of these uh, make sense for you. Eintracht Frankfurt, Mönchengladbach, Stuttgart, or right now Pellegrino Matarazzo is, though. We know he could be moving. And Bayer Leverkusen. 
Any of those sound good to you? And what they're saying is that Josh Sargent himself reportedly wants to stay or prefers to stay in Germany. Why not? It's a system, it's a culture that he's very familiar with. Listen, uh, this is good because a few maybe months ago or maybe a year ago, we actually heard Josh Sargent's name around the same time Weston McKinney went to Juventus of he's going to Juventus. He's a target for Juventus and we blew that right off. This wouldn't be the case now because we see the type of projection, we see the type of ceiling he is. So it doesn't surprise me that teams within Germany, within the Bundesliga see that value. Yeah, I, I hope it's Leverkusen. You know, I'm just saying we got we got track records of Concacaf guys scoring there. Leon Bailey, Chicharito, Javier and if you want the if you if you want the opposite of of what Werder Bremen do, it's Leverkusen. You it's know true. they're going to score. So if Josh Sargent can't score by Leverkusen, then he's got a problem. But I think you are not going to have any of the claims you complaints you had um, there with. Uh, with Werder Bremen. All right, Julian Green. Hey, so the, the Bundesliga is losing one American, but potentially. But they're going to gain another. That's Julian Green. He plays for Gruyter Firth. They're in the Bundesliga, too. And he actually scored the goal over the weekend that's got them promoted. They're coming back up just the second time in the team's history. Julian Green, his 10th goal of the season. Herky's having a great year. Back in the U.S. men's national team picture. And now back in the Bundesliga. And look where he's scoring his goals. Uh, he's a type of midfielder that you could put on the wing as a central midfielder, second forward. He really can play a bunch of different positions for you. He's only 25. I have to reiterate that. Oftentimes we think of Julian Green, you're like, wait, I, I recognize that name. Isn't that the guy who played in 2014 in the World Cup with the U.S. Men's National Team who essentially because of him, Landon Donovan didn't go to the World Cup in Brazil? But wait a second. Didn't he score a goal in that World Cup when he was 18 years old? Whatever <laughs> happened to him? Yes, that's that guy and he still has a lot to prove and a lot more left in that tank. We've not seen Julian Green in a first team setup and really have a run, really have a chance to fail or be successful in a first team uh, setup. Yeah, last call up was 2018, but he was called up into the group for the Switzerland friendly on May 30th. So we'll get another look at him, his first look under Greg Berhalter. Well, look, overall, Great season for Americans in Europe with potentially um, one exception in this regard of how it ended, and that is a championship. Daryl DK, what an amazing run. He's got Barnsley in the promotion playoffs, second leg against Swansea over the weekend, and what happens, Hurt? They don't start my man Daryl DK. Uh, what? What? Yeah. what? You know what? I did a little bit of digging because I was just as confused. I was like, who's the brainiac that decided it was a good idea to bench one of your leading goal scorers? One of the leading goal scorers in the championship since, he is, since his arrival. And then I did a little digging and wait a second. His last goal was April 10th versus Middlesbrough. Uh, since then, he's been scoreless in six straight. What's going on here? It's not like Barnsley scoring a bunch of goals. They've only scored four since then. But Daryl Deacon, maybe for the first time in his career, is going through that slump, learning what it's like to be a professional. And this could explain why he didn't play in that vital second leg in that playoff promotion. Mm, I mean, but he's got to be crushed. You know, whether it's, whether it's long term is, I mean, that's the game you want to play in, right? I just don't understand. They go down in, they go into it down one nothing from the first leg. It ends up 1-1, so they do... Uh, end up losing 2-1, to one. so it'll be Swansea against, who is it, uh, Brentford in the promotion final. Always an exciting one. Now, last week, Alexis Nunez actually had a chance to sit down with Daryl DK, wide-ranging inter interview. We picked out some of the best. Here's what he had to say about the national team and his future at club level. Let's listen in. Have you had a thought of 
probably goals that you want with the national team, at least in this recent future? No, I mean, I think I think collectively the national team and myself, you know, everyone has kind of talked about wanting to change how, you know, the world views, you know, American soccer. And I think, you know, with the group, you know, with the quality and, you know, with the matches, I mean, we know that we, you know, we have the opportunity to do that right now. And I think with these, you know, all these upcoming matches, Gold Cup, you know, Nations League and all these things, I think, you know, it's it's a time to prove. And I think a lot of the a lot of the players recognize that we have the quality, we have the group to, you know, be able to, you know, change people's opinion. And, you know, for me, I would love to be a part of that. You know, I want to, you know, help the team push forward and, you know, be a be a big important factor in that group as well. Do you feel like this is the best moment that we've seen probably in the history of U.S. soccer? Yeah, no, I think it's um, I think it's the moment. I mean, it, it's crazy. I think the squad is phenomenal, and you know, a lot of the players are super young at that. So you know, come coming to these uh, these next competitions, these next World Cups, it's you know, it's, it's exciting for sure. And I, you know, I even know that you know, after after our age, I mean, I'm only 20, but after our age, you know, there's still tons and tons of you know com upcoming talent. So it's just going to keep getting you know better and you know bigger and better. And I think that's it's exciting times for uh, U.S. soccer for sure. It's been such a short period of time that you've been here at Barnsley but what's been I suppose the biggest change on, on how you've had to adapt with um, the pace of football here? No, I think I, um, you know, this this season, you know, already in, uh, you know, middle of the season, so I was kind of, you know, thrown in, and I was, you know, I, I was kind of had to adjust very quickly. But I think, you know, luckily being, you know, being with the guys, being with the staff, I think everyone kind of integrated me, you know, very very quickly. And you know, I think I, I'm still learning. I still have, you know, a lot more to learn about the league. But you know, luckily being able to be around those, uh, you know, you know, this group, I think it's been great for me because I've gotten to, you know, adjust to the style of play, adjust to the speed, adjust to the, you know, the culture and you know after talking to some guys you know they've given me tips they've given me you know tools to you know make my life easier and make the team the group's uh, life easier do you feel like you're just getting started in a career here no i mean i think for me uh you know i i came here originally to you know grow as a player to you know grow as a, a person and kind of uh you know help the squad out and you know live the experience and i think for me no of course i think it's just kind of it's just kind of the beginning of you know my career in general i mean even in orlando it's just just had just started so i mean in terms of in terms of everything you know coming i'm you know i'm excited i'm excited that i know um i know i'm just going to keep growing and you know things are just going to keep you know unfolding and you know uh, it's exciting for sure so you still feel like unfinished business back in Orlando? I mean, I just want to grow as a player, whether it be in Orlando, whether it be, whether it be anywhere here in England. All right, so big news today, Herc. The U.S. has announced its final roster for the Nations League finals that are coming up later this summer, the 23 men under Greg Berhalter. The big surprise is actually the man that you just heard from, Daryl DK. They're not one of the 23. You as surprised as I am. A little. Uh, Greg Berhalter did say it'd be very difficult for players to participate, participate excuse me, in both tournaments. And I'm talking about the Nations League and what is Gold Cup in the same summer. So this is a very Euro-based roster that we just saw, this 23. That means Daryl DK is going to play a big part come Gold Cup. So I'm not too surprised I would have loved to have seen him maybe at a higher level with this roster. But if this means Daryl DK, we're going to see him run riot just on these uh, CONCACAF teams and Gold Cup. I I'm for it. Uh, real quick, we don't have to dive into the roster too much, but you have to acknowledge some of the big names that aren't on it. It's Josie Altidore and it's Michael Bradley. Are we at the point now where that ship is sailed? Is that era over? 
I think Greg Berhalter has made it evident with his last five, six call-ups that that ship has sailed. The new generation is in. This team no longer mm. belongs to Michael Bradley, Josie Alter. It belongs to Christian Pulisic, Tyler Adams, and Weston McKinney, and those likes. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Time to welcome in our guests here on Football Americas today, none other than Tiffany Roberts Sahedek. She is currently the women's soccer head coach at the University of Central Florida. She is also a World Cup champion, 1999, and an Olympic champion, 1996, with the U.S. women's national team. Tiffany, great to have you here on the show with us. You know, our first ever guest here on Football Americas, one of your former teammates, Julie Foudy, an icon of professionalism and everything else. But, man, you, you knew her as a teammate. You knew her as a teammate. Surely you must have some dirt you can give us on Julie. <laughs> Thanks for having me, guys. So I'm supposed to throw Foudy under the bus? <laughs> <laughs> Please. <laughs> you know, you know, Jules. What do you mean she's professional? What is she doing on this on this show? I've never seen her look professional ever. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. T Tiffany, I've got to ask you, I was looking back at your career. You debuted with the national team when you were 16, World Cup like at 17, 18 year olds, which blows my mind. Uh, that was an iconic team, that 99 team. What was it like for you being so young, being amongst all these legendary players? It was a dream come true, really. I mean, just to think about the leadership training that I had as a 16 year old growing up uh, with these women who are unbelievable players, but on top of that, just incredible leaders and human beings and just to watch them, um, you know, put put their team first all the time. I just learned so much about the game, but just about being a, a great human being and a great leader. So I use these experiences, I think, every single day, you know, especially in my career now as a head coach for UCF. So the results in 1999, y'all won it all. The results in 2019, they keep winning it all. Are there any differences between the U.S. women's national team then and now? Surely something must have changed, Tiffany, even if the results really haven't. I, yeah, I do. I think that there, there are some changes. Um, I'm lucky that I was on the team back in the day. I don't know if I had those same qualities that I would have even been selected. Um, back in the day, it was it was very physical and uh, fitness, uh, strong component, and um, psychologically, obviously, um, having that determination. But but now the game calls for being way more technical, way more tactical, and uh, just talking about me as a player, I was definitely far beyond, uh, far behind the majority of these players that are playing for the U.S. now. So. I think that triangle has um, turned upside down where technical and tactical are, are more important now. 
Tiffany, we're really excited to have you on the show kind of at this time because specifically, you know, May is Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And I know that you are involved in an initiative within United Soccer Coaches to kind of get a group going just for Asian American coaches, which I had to say when I first heard about this, I was like, it's 2021. How does this group not already exist? So, so why now and why is it so important? Well, I just think now is the time, right? Just especially in, in, in recent times and seeing all the racism that is happening, especially against the Asian American, um, you know, uh, AAPI group. And so um, it's time. And so we put together a group um, within the United Soccer Coaches. So we're AAPI Coaches Advocacy Group. And it's so nice. We've been having meetings every uh, a monthly meeting, um, just getting together. It's a great way to network, mentor, um, just empower. I think when we share even stories, um, you don't realize how many people are connected to you and it's uh, pretty empowering once you do that. So, um, I know it's, it's been a long time coming, but, but now is better than, than never. And, uh, it's, it's really important that we have role models too, because I know for me as a younger player growing up, I, I didn't have, you know, Asian, uh, Pacific Islander role models, and um, I'm glad that hopefully I could be one for a young girl or, or boy, you know, looking, looking to play or looking to coach and be part of the game. You know, Tiffany, on this show, we often talk a lot about representation and how it matters in American soccer. But I don't think we talk enough about the Asian American community ourselves. You, as an Asian American within the soccer community, do you feel adequately represented in American soccer? No, I don't. And um, and that's why it's so important for me to be part of this group, group, excuse me, part of this group. And so just to be um, a role model, like I said, um, for young girls, young coaches even, you know, I'm not young anymore like I used to be. So I've been coaching 15 years collegiately and um, there are some great coaches coming through and even for my student athletes. Um, so, you know, there's a, a teammate of mine, Lori Fair, um, prominent player with the U.S. Women's National Team. She's half Chinese. You know, she's part of this group, too. And we both played on the national team together. But, you know, the two of us kind of were um, two peas in a pod. And, um, you know, I just love to see um, more opportunity uh, for, for our group and our community, for sure. Yeah, one more note on that. Uh, I know somebody that you're working with very closely over there at the United Soccer Coach is actually my college soccer coach, Tiffany Girish Sakar at Westminster College, a man who put up with me for four years. I never did anything that made him happy, but us having you on this show will finally be able to give me the one thing I can say <laughs> I made my college coach smile um, once. <laughs> Listen, um, before we let you go, I, I got to ask you about something that came up on the show last week because it really kind of jumped out when we started uh, talking about it, and it was around the Women's Champions League final. Emma Hayes, the coach at Chelsea, was the first woman to manage in a Champions League final in 12 years in the Women's Champions League. When we talk about representation, Tiffany, um, is there enough opportunity for women's coaching in the women's game itself? I don't. I really don't think that there is. And it's it's hard. It's hard to be in this position and, and sometimes be looked at as um, – you know, there's a lot of discrimination against us women. I think for me personally, you know, you look at me, I might look younger. I might look like I'm not as experienced, but you know what? I am very experienced, but um, I just think that there's not enough opportunity. And also like just for me, when I was getting my license within U.S. soccer, I mean, there was only two women um, hmm. in our group and that's even um, 
difficult for women to step out of their comfort zone too, and be part of, you know, 30 other professional guys to work with for the 10 days. I know it's a different um, situation now getting your license, but um, it's really hard. Um, and we all got to get out of our comfort zone and we all have to be okay. Giving the opportunity to a woman to step up. Cause I think if we're given the chance, you know, more uh, managers would be, um, or more athletic directors, whatever, it, whatever organization you're part of, um, would be surprised what we can do. Tiffany Roberts-Sahedek, the head coach at the University of Central Florida, U.S. Women's National Team, World Cup and Olympic champion as well. Tiffany, thanks so much for the time. We really appreciate you coming on Football Americas. Thanks, Tiffany. Thanks for having me. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to JetsPizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jets' signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. Hi, final in Liga MX. We know who the two finalists will be. Let's start with Cruz Azul. They beat Pachuca 1-0 on Saturday. The goal from that man, Chaquito Jimenez. You know you're old when the dudes you grew up watching, their kids are scoring uh, big goals nowadays. That goal gives Cruz Azul passage into the final herc as they beat Pachuca 1-0 on the weekend. Some respect on his name. Santiago. Santiago Jimenez. Not, Cha not Chaquito. That's not his dad playing. That's Santiago. By the way, two big important goals leading up to that to get him to the finals. All right, the other semifinal, Santos Puebla, also known as the uh, Hercules Gomez Bowl. Yep. Puebla winning the second leg, 1-0, but of course Santos won the first leg, 3-0, so not really much to play for in the second leg. Santos are through. Uh, this one very much a dead rubber, Herc. Yeah, it was over leg one. Santos Laguna are a very difficult team to play against, especially when they're playing in El TSM in their place, in front of their fans. Uh, it'd be You'd be hard-pressed to find any who comes out of there alive. Okay, so Cruz Azul, no title since 1997. If you've watched this show once, you've heard the word Cruz Azuliada. They are the infamous lovable losers of Mexico. They cannot get it over the line when it counts most. Oh, and here they are. Yeah. Once again, they find themselves in a final. Although getting to a final has never been the problem for Cruz Azul. Is this week now, because so far so good, is this week now when that pressure, those ghosts, the fantasmas, the fantasmas. maldiciones, all that stuff starts to weigh in on Cruz Azul? Of course. On paper, Cruz Azul is the favorite. On paper, they've had a historic season, over 40 points, uh, what they've done at home, who they beat, the, in the way and the manner which they've beaten them, one of the most offensive teams, one of the best defensive teams, uh, the, the, one of the leading goal scorers in the tournament, who's uh, bicampeón de goleo, has won the goal scoring title already twice, a legendary defender like uh, Pablo Aguilar, who's best defender in this decade in Liga MX, up and young, up and coming, excuse me, talent in what is Orbelín Pineda, Chaquito Jimenez, and you can't guarantee this is the year. Why? Look at the finals. Look at the amount oh. of losses they've had since their last title, 1997. It seems like every time there is something they can do to eliminate that doubt, to give their fan base some sort of joy, their huge fan base, because they are one of the four 
Giants, one of the four grandes in what is Mexican soccer. They blow it, but they don't only blow it, Seb. They don't just lose. They lose in the most dramatic way possible. The two finals they lost to America. One of those finals, a goalkeeper scored on them. A goalkeeper <laughs> scored on them in the dying minutes to keep the game alive, send it to penalties, and they lose. In another game, a semifinal last year, they're up 4-0 in the first leg against a inner, inner league, or um, city rival, what is Pumas, and they blow four goals and get eliminated. It always seems like Cruz Azul have it, and then they don't. La Cruz Azuleada, they let it slip away, and this is why you can't trust this team. Mm, okay, so they love losing finals. We saw that list. They lost in 2018. They lost in 2013. They also lost three out of four finals between 2008 and 2009. And, Herc, one of those finals that they lost in 2008 was to none other than Santos. So let's look at the Santos side of this, because I tell you what, in Mexico, I feel like for the next couple days, nobody's going to write a single word about Santos. Nobody's going to talk about Santos. They're the under... I mean, people are going to be talking about Cruz Azul. That That's what pays the bills. Let me ask. Let me ask. You said you said they were an underdog. How big an underdog, though? Uh, on paper, I think anybody who's watched Santos over the years who just knows what the organization is about. Let me paint the picture. 2007 relegation battle. 2008. When Grupo Modelo, headed by Orlegi Sport, well now Orlegi Sports, Alejandro Iragori is at the helm, uh, restructuring of, of what is Santos Laguna, they win against Cruz Azul. That starts off what is just this amazing uh, run of results, championships, international finals for what is Santos Laguna. 2012 championship, 2015 championship, 2018 championship, and maybe 2021. They are a winning franchise. They know how to get it done. 12 finals since you've gone to two finals every year, these Torneo Cortos. They are one of the uh, most successful teams in Liga MX as of to date, and that is a difference. They are not historic. They don't have the names, because you look on paper, Cruz Azul takes it by an overwhelming majority. The names, the star power, the money, et cetera, et cetera, the history, whatever you want. But Santos Laguna and their young players, Santos Laguna and their young bucks, they're doing it today. Acevedo, their starting goalkeeper, was one of those ball boys in the 2008 final against Cruz Azul. You see him in front of Achita Ludueña. He's one of those young guys that come up, that's come up to the ranks, and this is what Santos does. They do things the right way, and because of that, they are in another final. So, yes, respect yeah, them, please. Of course, down in Mexico, a two-leg final, the first leg on Thursday. We will have much more on Cruz Azul, the history, all that on Thursday's show. Now let's go MLS, Major League Soccer. Good, bad, and ugly from the weekend and for all my friends out in LA, for all my friends out in LA who say, they say watch the show and they're like, man, Sebi has something against LAFC. Sebi has something, and I fought this week. Herc, I fought hard. I fought hard. LAFC is the good in the good, the bad and the ugly. And you know why? Cause your boy, Carlos Vela is back. LAFC snapping a four game winless streak Carlos Vela returns against the Colorado Rapids. I'm not sure why we showed that highlight, uh, but he did get an assist to Diego Rossi as LAFC gets the win out of the cellar and they get it 2-1 over Colorado. Uh, can we go to me? Uh, let me read you and I quote text from Bob Bradley. Get lost, Seb. <laughs> Your boy. Then all seriousness, this is what you want and this is what you expect 
out of LAFC. LAFC has turned into one of the premier uh, franchises in Major League Soccer for what they did in 2019, for how they came out of the gate in 2018. I love what they have going against the Galaxy, this rivalry and how it has the city buzzing, how it's all Major League Soccer buzzing, it's rivaling uh, what is uh, Portland, Seattle, Montreal, Toronto, all those great rivalries, yes. But Carlos Vela is the catalyst to everything here. That was mm -hmm. classic Carlos Vela. My friend Sebastian Salazar would say vintage Carlos Vela coming from the right, cutting in, driving at the heart of the defense, and then assisting a Diego Rossi who needs to be informed. If LAFC, and as I predicted, would be Supporter Shield champions, as many predicted would have something to say in that MLS Cup, if they are to be successful, Carlos Vela needs to play, he needs to be healthy, and Diego Rossi should be on the receiving end of plays like that. Yeah, very, very good for me to see Carlos Vela find LAFC's best player and most productive player, Diego Rossi. Oh, that was a shot. I'm sorry, what? Uh, coming out of the bad. <laughs> uh, CF Montreal. We could give them bad just for the terrible rebrand, but now nah, we'll save it for Romel Kyoto. Que pasó, mi rey? Okay, let's start with the name. It could have been Clifford. Clifford Montreal. Um, yeah, I don't know what he's doing here. He opens his body up way too much. It's easier to score than to miss. And this cost him the game. Cincinnati would come back and win this one. Hey, speaking of costing somebody the game, uh, the ugly from LA Galaxy, Portland Timbers, Derek Williams with his challenge on Andy Polo, a straight red. Um, Herc, this is ugly on every level. I, 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 I mean, I, I was stunned. You were calling the game. What, what did you do? Yeah, I was calling this game. Uh, worried for Andy Polo at the moment. It looks like he's going to miss the rest of the season oh. with thigh and knee injury. Uh, we don't know the extent of it. Hopefully looking for more details, but it does not look good for him. Derek Williams took a shot from his own keeper to play right before this. He did not look right himself. I don't know if he was all there at the time he went into that tackle. Mm. He certainly didn't look like he was pulling away from it. He missed the ball completely. It was just a strange, baffling play. Uh, it's very unfortunate the way it happened and the way it ultimately changed the game. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the big thing, right? Is that this was a game the Galaxy looked like they may well win. Instead, they end up losing 3 nothing. So for Derek Williams, I mean, come on, Herc. They were at least going to get something out of that I match. don't know about this, that. Por Portland, had, Portland had way much more of the game, way better of the chances. But when you have a player like Javier Hernandez and it's still 0-0, I'm never going to count you out. What do you think you'll get? Suspension? Yeah. How long? No, I... It's got to be at least three games, you would assume. Uh, three games, if not more. This was as bad as it gets, Sebi. Uh, Merritt Paulson, the owner of the Portland Timbers, within minutes in that game was already tweeting about how disgusting the tackle was, and I think many uh, would agree with them. You're, you're looking at a multi-game suspension for sure. Yeah, and one of them, the people that agreed with him was Greg Vanny. Said it's a red in every league, no matter what the situation. So uh, nobody hiding from it on the Galaxy side either. And a big loss for the Galaxy as they drop the points. Maybe an even bigger loss for the Timbers. They lose Andy Polo. They already have injury issues kind of through the roof. So worries there for Giovanni Savares. Hi, it's Mike Greenberg letting you know ESPN Bet is ready to take you through all the biggest sports moments this spring. The official sportsbook of ESPN has exclusive offers and markets from Scott Van Pelt, Stephen A. Smith, and me, plus many more. From the playoff intensity to finally getting out to the ballpark, there's no better time for sports fans. Sign up today. New users get a bet reset up to $1,000 in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Download ESPN Bet today. What a play. 
Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. See app for details. All right, Herc, so let's get to uh, one more bit of news that hit over the weekend. And depending on who you're listening to, it might be the biggest news that we've had in quite some time in American soccer. And that is the recent acknowledgement from the U.S. Soccer Federation that they will end their over 20-year relationship with a company called Soccer United Marketing. Now, for those that don't know what Soccer United Marketing is, here's probably a good moment, right, Herc, to explain it to people. It's a company that for the last 20 years has been the exclusive marketing partner of the Federation. So that means anything like broadcast rights, sponsorship, goes through Soccer United Marketing. And for those rights, Soccer United Marketing then pays the Federation a pretty big chunk of money. And that money is what the Federation uses, Herc, to do its business. One more thing that people should know about Soccer United Marketing. It is entirely owned by the exact same people as Major League Soccer. So Herc, how big of a deal is this in American soccer? It's a huge deal. I'd say it's probably the biggest American story we have today. Hmm. You look at all the problems, all the lawsuits, the majority of the lawsuits that U.S. soccer has, and at the helm is this antitrust lawsuit, this single entity, this sum and its involvement with U.S. soccer and how it's a conflict of interest. And why do I say conflict of interest, Seb? Because when you look at what's best for U.S. soccer as a federation, it's not what's best for Major League Soccer. It's not what's best for NASL. It's as a whole. But many feel the involvement with some, how some has been in bed with U.S. soccer has clouded a lot of those lines. So yes, it's a huge deal. And you said it best. It's the marketing arm. The arm is connected to the body so this is very much major league soccer uh who is advertising uh doing uh, middlemen so to speak for u.s soccer so i like the the words there conflict of interest right there are conflicts of interest all over american soccer herc you have heard me on the record and off the record rant about this a lot but look There are conflicts of interest all over American business. There are conflicts of interest all over American government. Not all conflicts of interest are problematic. It is my opinion that this particular conflict of interest, Herc, is extremely problematic. I like the way that you summed it up. I would put it, if I were trying to explain it to folks, in this way. Soccer United Marketing is owned by Major League Soccer. And as I just explained off the top, it is Soccer United Marketing that because of this relationship has been effectively paying the Federation's bills for the last 20 years. But Herc, you and I know, when we talk about the U.S. Soccer Federation, their job is to govern over Major League Soccer, right? Right. How can you govern over an entity that is also, through another entity, paying your bills? And so I think that's where you get into a conflict of interest that has a lot of people around American soccer asking frankly and honestly if what the Federation does is in the best interests of all or if what the Federation does is in the best interest specifically and only of Major League Soccer. And by eliminating this connection, Herc, I think there is a huge tension released from American soccer. We can now have open and honest conversations about things that may need to be changed. And that, to me, is very important. What this may lead to is very important. Yes, for the time being, because we don't know the date of tomorrow. Uh, U.S. soccer would say, you know what, I miss some and go right back to it. I miss IMG, go right back to it. There are different, or in many ways, this can happen, but I agree with you. If U.S. soccer is to govern all, it can't be in bed with one. 
Yeah, very interesting. There's a lot more to come on this. I'm sure there's an MLS angle that we could probably dive into as well at a later date. What this means for Major League Soccer, a very significant year, Herc, for MLS when it comes to that money. We'll leave that for another day. Thursday on Football Americas, we lock in on the Liga MX final. Will Cruz Azul finally, finally be able to get it done? Herc, what you wearing? My man Ibra. You know this. What you got? Look at that, little U.S. Women's National Team breaking tees, four stars, turn the crest inside out. That's what you do when you got beef with the Federation.